Please take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1. And let me lay down for you the scripture passage which offers to us a foundation for our challenge and our thinking today. It is 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, when Paul is reminding Timothy of his responsibility as a minister of the gospel. And watch what he says. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us, verse 7 now, that was verse 6, chapter 1, 2 Timothy. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. God has not given us a spirit of fear. And if God did not give us a spirit of fear, then where did the spirit of fear come from? In New York several years ago, they did a survey of uh, a certain cross-section of persons and found that only one out of five persons could be declared even what we might call normal normal. That three out of every four persons were bound in a strong way by some fear. So that means there are not many of us walking around that aren't in bondage to something. But God has not given us a spirit of fear. And fear is one of Satan's most used weapons in spiritual warfare. We're talking about the battle that is not carnal, but in the spirit world. However, God always gives us a way out. While many of us live a life of fear, bound by fear in one way or another, listen to the words of the Old Testament. The writer of Proverbs, Solomon, be not afraid of sudden fear, for the Lord shall be thy confidence. Proverbs 3, 25 and 26. God told David, don't fear, David, I am your shield. And in the great 23rd Psalm, David said, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. And again, David said, I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. Psalm 34. Again, listen to David. What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. In God I have put my trust. I will not fear what flesh can do to me. Isn't that a great verse? I wish we could all memorize that. That's Psalm 56. Now, let me lay down for you what I believe is a very fundamental foundational truth regarding this concept that fear is one of Satan's most often used weapons in spiritual warfare. Take your Bibles and go back to the Old Testament, and we'll start back here in a minute, but I want to show you a foundation. It is Proverbs chapter 29, again, another great verse to memorize, Proverbs 29 and verse 25. The fear of man brings a snare. The fear of man brings a snare. 
But whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Recent revelations at the North Carolina School of the Arts have reminded me, and the accusations and the allegations have reminded me of Proverbs 29, 25. The professor has a tremendous amount of influence upon a student. And that student, fearing what the professor might do, can be caught in a terrible snare when pressure comes from a, from a professor. At Florida Atlantic University in Boca Raton two years ago, a professor of biology admitted that he was having sexual relationships with three of his students in his class at one time. When they asked the young ladies why they didn't reveal this, the answer was, we were afraid of what he would do with our grades. And at the American Association of University Professors meeting that next year, a motion was made condemning relationships with our professors, with their students, and it was voted down. They refused to endorse a prohibition, a sanction against professors with the undue advantage over their students. And ladies and gentlemen, most of us have been in that kind of a situation. The fear of man is a what? It's a snare. It's a trap. Whether it's fear that somebody has a boat bigger than ours, or someone got a new car and we didn't, or someone got the solo and we didn't, the fear of what man will do for us if we fail or if we don't come up to what someone else has is a snare, a trap, and it is a bondage. But whoever does what is right and trusts in the Lord shall be safe. I'd like to name for you this morning, before we analyze how to face fear, what I call the seven deadly fears for man. I went through the passages in the scripture and for several weeks have just been making a list and I've distilled that list to seven deadly fears that become a snare to all of us in one way or another. Fear number one is the fear of loss. The fear that I'm going to lose something very valuable and so I must do whatever it takes to keep what I think is valuable. Now, I want to give you a good example of that. And it's found in Genesis chapter 26. After Isaac, God's promised son to Abraham, was born, and after God gave him Rebekah, he goes down to the land of the Philistines where Abimelech is, and he does the same thing his father Abraham did. Now watch, Genesis chapter 26, verse 6. So Isaac dwelt in Gerar, and the men of the place asked him about his wife. And he said, she is my sister. For he was afraid to say, she is my wife, because he thought, lest the men of the place should kill me for Rebekah, because she is beautiful to behold. Man, I like a man that knows how pretty his wife is, don't you? He said, she is so beautiful to behold. If I tell them she is my wife, they might kill me in order to get her. <laughs> so Abimelech uh, 
looks out the window in verse 8 and sees him. I love this phrase in the old, this is the new King James. But in verse 8 it says, showing endearment to Rebecca. <laughs> Isn't that a great phrase? How many of you have showed any endearment this morning? Anybody hugged your wife or hugged your husband or held hands? Have you showed any endearment? Man, what a phrase. But he lied because he was afraid that she would be stolen from him. And that fear of losing Rebecca nearly became a snare to the whole nation of the Philistines. And we do the same thing. We may lie in order not to lose something we deem precious. It's one of the seven deadly fears that snares and traps man. It is the fear of loss. But if there's something that you love so much that you're not willing to give it up and trust God for the results, then folks, you're probably going to lose it anyway. And you need to get ready to give it up. It's what we call renunciation. He didn't have to leave Rebecca, but he had to come to the place where he knew that God had given her to him and that it didn't make any difference what man might do. He was trusting in the Lord. The second deadly fear from man is the fear of the wicked. Look over in Proverbs chapter 10. And it comes to us in different ways. Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 24. It's a neat verse. In fact, it's really a, a parallel with a previous verse. To do evil is like sport to a fool. But a man of understanding has wisdom. The fear of the wicked will come upon him and the desire of the righteous will be granted. The man of understanding is the man who when he fears the wicked, when he fears what the wicked will do to him, he puts his life in God's hands and the desire of the righteous will be granted. In every one of these deadly fears, the test is always a test of faith. Can God take care of me when wicked men surround me? It is the fear of the wicked. The thing that I have found that is so very valuable to young adults and to high school students and college students is to explain to them how the crowd or how the wicked can foist their values on them. And in our me age, the age in which all of us want to make choices for ourselves and all of us want more choices, somebody else starts naming your value system when your life is dictated to by the fear of the wicked. What will the wicked do if I don't do this? What will the wicked do if I don't do that? It's the fear of being politically incorrect. Did you see where Norma McCorvey came out this week? She is Jane Roe of Roe v. Wade. And Flip Benham, a preacher, moved his office in next to the abortion clinic where she was director of marketing. And she then revealed that some time back, she had stood looking at a school class, uh, a school playground, watching the empty swings with no children in them. And God used that image. She was suddenly overcome with a sense of guilt. Where have all the children gone? 
She then said that the people in the pro-life movement have loved me in a way that those in the pro-choice movement have never loved me but have only taken advantage of me. Yet when Dan Rather reported that, he still referred to it as the anti-abortion movement. I find that interesting. But anyway, she finally decided that the fear of what others would do to her was no longer worth hiding her true convictions about life. Now she said, I'm still, I still believe that women have a right to an abortion in the first trimester if it's necessary. But then in the same breath she said, I am convinced, I heard this on television, a TV report, I am convinced that abortion is wrong. The fear of the wicked. The fear of the mass. Thirdly, the, the third deadly fear for man is the fear of the crowd. It is the fear of the crowd, those immediately around you. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 8. It's a very interesting passage as the prophet talks about what the Lord told him to do and how he warned him about, uh, about the um, enemy, the king of Assyria. And he said in verse 4, he said, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be taken away before the king of Assyria. And the Lord spoke to me again. And here's part of what the Lord said in verse 12. Do not say a conspiracy, Assyria. Assyria, and that is Damascus and Samaria. Do not say a conspiracy. Don't worry if you think people are ganging up on you. Concerning all that this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid, fearful of their threats, nor be troubled. For the Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. Let God be your fear. Fascinating passage. Do you remember in the book of Genesis when God was called the fear of Isaac? That was his name, the dread of Isaac. The only thing that Isaac learned to fear was God himself. And God was called the dread or the fear of Isaac. Now the challenge here is when you hear the rumors of Samaria and you hear the rumors of Assyria and you hear the rumors of Damascus coming down against you, don't let it shake you and make you afraid because they will say a conspiracy but don't be afraid of their threats. For the Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. One of our men told me years ago when I was involved in some kind of a campaign, I don't know, it was probably anti-liquor by the drink. He said to me, Pastor, he said, uh, you know, I work for the city and uh, the men down there where I work say, you shouldn't uh, speak up on issues like this that a preacher should just speak in the church and that's all he should say is what he has to say in his pulpit. Now I want to tell you, that's going to be a sad day when the preacher has no right or no courage to speak to the issues outside the church in the world. That's why we're placed here, to be salt and light in the world. And the challenge of the prophet Isaiah is, no, 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 don't be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Now that's so easy for the prophet to say. So easy for the Lord to give that message. But folks, every one of us, because we are creatures as we are, we are susceptible to the fear 
The fear that a crowd has over, uh, puts in us when it makes a threat against us or troubles us. When we feel like we're a subculture and the rest of the world is going east and we're going west. And that's where the body of Christ is really today. That's where we are. The fear of the crowd. The fourth deadly fear is the fear of pain. Read Matthew chapter 10. Jesus has given us some lasting and very, very sage advice in Matthew chapter 10. When he speaks of fear, he says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, I don't know about you. I, there aren't too many things I'm afraid of. I am afraid of some things, but not much. Uh, in fact, if you tell me that I can't do something, I probably will break my back doing it, whether it has pain in it or not. Some of you, how many of you are married to somebody like that? You're married to somebody like that. You've seen that. Now, Jesus says that one of the basic fears of man is the fear of pain. The fear of what people can do to you, to the body, to inflict pain. Have you ever been in a fight and lost? Anybody here ever been in a fight and lost? How many of you have been in a fight and lost? You lost a fight and you don't mind admitting it. <laughs> Jeremy, you ever been in a fight and lost? Have you ever been in a fight? Haven't been in a fight. That's one way to, uh, to avoid pain. <laughs> but Jesus said, there is a fear of the body, a fear of pain, which can manage us and control us and keep us from doing a lot of things. But he said, now that you don't want to fear. Genuine, true fear is fearing the one who can destroy not only the body, but the soul, both soul and body in hell. There is a tremendous fear regarding the pain that others can inflict on you. The fifth fear is the fear of failure. Matthew chapter 25. And here in Matthew chapter 25, there is an enormously uh, popular parable about the talents. You remember that? And I want to center in on just one of the key characters in that parable of the talents. The Bible says that God gave, as you know, and you can read down through that beginning in chapter 25, verse 14. God gave uh, five talents to one, two to another in verse 15, and one talent to another. When he came to the one in verse 24, who had received the one talent, he said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard and austere man, reaping where you had not sown and gathering where you had not scattered seed. And I was afraid. I was afraid. Underline that. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have the one that is yours. Now, folks, that is the fear of failure. I was afraid I would lose the one and I would displease you. So I hid it in the ground. And the master says, you wicked and lazy servant in verse 26, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered. And he took the one talent from him and gave it to the one who had the ten. 
I suppose that probably hinders more Christians from service. Why do you think in our bulletin today we're begging, literally begging for people to be involved in the prayer ministry? I just glanced through this. We need an interpreter for the deaf. We have children's choir leadership needs. We have teachers. We, we need teachers in children's division, teachers in preschool division. We need all kinds of, of uh, servants. But many of us are afraid of failure. And it's a snare to us. We're afraid to fail before man. We might not do it right. I can't do this. I can't do that. For the past week, we've been with our family on a vacation. And uh, when I was with the children, the four children, they all have husbands and wives now. And guess what? There are nine grandchildren out of those four. Now, I've had an education all over again this week. I must confess to you, I have really had an education. And I have learned that, and I've been studying children all week. My wife's grandchildren, I've been studying and watching. <laughs> and I have learned that when children say, watch me, Papa, I'm going to do this that they're saying several things when they say, watch me. They won't, they won't do it until they know your eye is on them. One, they want to brag a little bit before you and let you see what they can do. How many of you agree? That's one element in that. Children just need to do a little bragging to grandpa. But secondly, children also want their confidence built. They want to know that grandpa loves them. And you show that love by the attention you give. How many agree to that? Amen? Okay. But I have come to discover that when a three-year-old wants to make his first jump off the side of a pool or dive into his first wave in the ocean, he wants grandpa to see him, to be close enough to see them so that if he fails, grandpa can rescue him. And that gives him security to get out of the boat and into the water and take a risk. And I think here's where most Christians are snared by fear. Go back to Matthew chapter 14. Do you remember the story of Peter and the boat? And it's in the middle of the night. The story is in Matthew 14. And in the middle of the night, they see someone walking on the water and they think it's a ghost. And Jesus says, be not what? Be not afraid, it is I. And Peter, blustery, boisterous, impulsive Peter, standing in the boat says, you command me, Lord, and I'll do it. Tell me what to do. I think he was begging him to say, jump out of the boat. And Jesus said, come and walk to me. And for the first time in history, a mortal man actually walked on water and there were no, storm, no stones or whales underneath that he was walking on. You, you understand that? And then as soon as he took his eyes off Jesus and looked down in the water, he began to sink. And Jesus, like grandpa, was right there to save him. Now, did Peter fail or was that a failure? You know, I, I used to think that that was a failure, but I have come to believe that the failure was committed by the 11 who sat in the boat and didn't have the courage to get out of the boat. 
And that's where most of us are. We're sitting in the boat. We don't have the courage to get out on the boat. It's like Vance Havner used to say, a whole lot of people worried about getting on a limit hadn't even climbed up a tree. <laughs> and we're afraid to get out of the boat. Somebody asked Jonah Salk, I read this recently when he died. They said, how many times did you try to make that polio vaccine? He said, 200. He said, the reporter said to him, how did you handle 200 failures? He said, I never had a failure in my life. He said, my family taught me never to use the word failure. He said, I learned 200 ways not to make polio vaccine, but I never had a failure. And, and everything in the Christian life will require risk. Faith requires risk. Risk requires the possibility of a temporary setback. And what keeps many of us from witnessing, what keeps many of us from public repentance, what keeps many of us from re revival is the fear of failure. The fear that it won't work. But nothing ever happens in the life of a Christian even if it appears to be failure. But what God turns it into growth and you cannot grow until you get out of the boat. And where most of us are, we're sitting in the boat. Half of the things that God has laid on the, on the heart of the leadership of this church to do cannot be done because we're sitting in the boat. We won't get out of the boat. We won't take the risk. Yes, it will look like failure, but yes, God will save us. Yes, God will teach us. Yes, we'll learn what not to do. Yes, the next time we'll be fuller of faith. Churchill was asked by a reporter, he said, what made you such a strong leader, able to take Britain through the German charge in the war? He said, well, I'll tell you what really shaped me most. It was the time I repeated a class back in grade school. And the reporter said, oh, do you mean you flunked? Did you actually flunk a grade? He said, no, I was given a second chance at the same grade. How many of you ever failed a test? Come on, don't, don't be ashamed to admit it. How many ever, ever flunked a grade? Did you flunk a grade? How many of you, Bob Tannehill, as smart as you are with words? Yeah. You were looking at the girls across the room, weren't you? I know what you were doing. <laughs> How many of us have ever been jilted, had a broken romance? Have you ever had that happen to you? Friend, if you don't get out of the boat, you'll never know what God can do. And that's what happens when the failure, the fear of failure becomes a snare. And we're afraid to be what God wants us to be and do what God wants us to do. There's a sixth deadly fear. It's the fear of losing face. Turn over to Mark chapter 12 and watch Mark chapter 12. When Jesus had spoken the parable of the vineyard owner to the Pharisees and the Jews, the leaders, verse 12 gives us a tremendous insight to their psychology. They sought to lay hold of him, but feared the multitude. They feared the masses, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is what I call the fear of losing face. The Jewish leaders would have taken him prematurely, but the masses were swayed by Christ. They'd been influenced by the Lord, and they feared losing face before the crowd. Losing face meant losing power, losing position, losing uh, perhaps their, their uh, place with Rome. 
You know, uh, when I was studying this, I went back to the first group trip I ever made to Israel. My first trip to Israel was in 1973. I was coming back from uh, Thailand, and uh, I had come through um, Iran, and the missionaries had uh, told me how to see Israel. And so uh, I got uh, off the plane and got a bus for a dollar, which took me into Jerusalem, over to Jerusalem, and I found the Savoy Hotel right around the corner from the Baptist bookstore where I stayed for $6 a night. There was not a lot of room in that room, but six bucks a night in downtown Jerusalem, a half a block from the old city. And I found an Arab restaurant where supper was served for $1.99 and breakfast was served for a dollar and a quarter and lunch, you just took whatever you could find. And uh, I went over to the Baptist bookstore and found a man by the name of Jaime who had an old Peugeot who rented himself and the car to me for $15 a day. And in four days, I had a private chauffeur in a Peugeot, if you please, all over Israel from my $6 hotel and my $1.99 Arab restaurant. And uh, can you imagine for less than $100, I spent four days seeing everything there was in Israel at my own pace. And I thought I was on top of the world. And the next time we took a group back, the cost was astronomical. It had gone up to $695 for 10 days in Israel. And we led a group to Israel. And I'll never forget something that happened because the Holy Spirit quickened my heart and it left an impression on me I have never forgotten. We were at the tomb of Lazarus where he had been raised in Bethany. And there was a little stand out there where a man was selling rings. They're selling things everywhere in Israel. And everywhere you go, it's a dollar, one dollar, two dollar, three dollar. Right, Don? Everywhere. <laughs> and I had found this beautiful ring. And he had wanted thirty dollars for the ring. And I had bargained the man down to twenty-four. And I thought I had gotten a steal. And I went everywhere showing everybody the ring I had bought for my wife for $24. And then one of the crowd, whoever it was, I don't even remember who it was, he's probably here this morning, got on the bus and showed the same ring and boasted to everybody that he had gotten the man down to $18. Now, I'm a preacher. I've studied the Bible. I know what it means to walk in the Spirit. I'm filled with the Spirit. I'm in the land of Jesus, right? How do you get carnal in the, in, in the land of Israel? But suddenly, there was a mixture of heat and anger and jealousy and envy, and there was a mixture of uh, uh, all of those things into one pot of stew in my mind and my heart. And I was determined that I would watch the next purchase he made and that whatever he got the man down to, I would get the man down lower. And I followed that person at the next market. It was in Bethlehem, as I recall. And I went to that merchant and I watched what he did. And then I tried to get that merchant lower. And suddenly, as I was bargaining with him, the Holy Spirit wrenched my heart. 
and said, Courts, you are a fool. Why do you let what one man did control your life? If the $24 was a good price for the ring, take it, keep it, praise God for it, bless God you got it, and don't ever look back. And you know, I walked away from that, from that trader, I walked away from that merchant, and I never again tried to find out what anybody paid for anything. And when anybody goes with me on a trip, I tell them, once you buy it, don't ever look back. Amen? Just accept that you got a bargain. That poor guy's got to live. And I consider the $6 difference between 18 and 24 as a philanthropic contribution to the poor Palestine. And once I did that, I went on and never worried again about that $18 ring and the $6 difference. The fear of man is a snare when you get your eyes on man. The seventh and last fear is the fear of rejection in Philippians chapter 1. And in Philippians chapter 1, Paul is giving a word of encouragement in verse 12. I want you to know, brethren, that the things which have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. So that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. My chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, having been boosted in their faith by my experience, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. What keeps you from being a witness for Christ? Is it the fear of rejection? Is this the fear Paul is speaking about? If my leader, they reasoned, is spending time in Roman chains with the palace guard, then I should not be afraid of rejection, of reproach by the world. And so the Christians, he said, have been encouraged to speak the word without fear but with boldness to overcome fear because of what Paul had gone through. That's what it means to get out of your boat. I am absolutely convinced that the single greatest reason that we don't witness the way we ought to witness. You say, but Mark, we don't witness the way we used to witness. I know that. You witness any way God leads you to witness at any time. But the single greatest reason for the lack of witnessing and bearing fruit in this body of believers is the fear of rejection. We can't stand to be rejected. And we ought to be encouraging each other, Paul said, as the Christians of his day were encouraged by his chains in boldness to speak the word without any fear, the fear of rejection. Now, there are the seven deadly fears. Let me just share with you three simple ways, I think, we in spiritual warfare need to overcome those fears. You'll never grow. You will never reach your potential. You will never be a fruit bearer. You will never be discipled. You will never be all that God wants you until you learn how to overcome fear in spiritual warfare. The first thing is this. 
We must know how to identify fear. Now, God gave us the capacity for the emotion of fear for a good reason. There are some things we need to learn to fear. But what the devil does is he comes in and distorts that fear. And the fear that the scriptures have been speaking about here is the fear that gets our eyes off God and believes that we have to superintend our own lives. It's that fear. If I'm going to be a witness for Christ, I must make up my mind. I'm going to share Christ. And if people reject me, they have to reject me. They're rejecting my Lord. But if God accepts me, then nothing else really matters. That's what we mean when we talk about the centrality of Christ in a life. If my wife loves me, then I want the women around me to think well of me, but it really doesn't matter ultimately as long as she is in that box and she loves me. That's the most important thing. Amen? And it's true with Jesus. The fear of man is a snare. I identify improper fears by things which require my management rather than the Lord's management. That's the way I identify the things that are the source of fear in my life. Have you ever been cut from a ball team? Have you ever been, have you been through that? Do you know what that is? To have people look at you and say, she tried out for cheerleader and she didn't make it? And you just tremble at that? But, you know, there's some er other area in your life that God is already at work in producing something great in you. And if you keep your eyes on him, let him manage your affairs. And you take your hands. Fear is our emotional reaction when we try to manage life by ourselves. It's as simple as that. And it takes us away from, from risk, which takes us away from faith, which keeps us from growing and becoming all that God has made us to be. Now the second thing that must happen in overcoming fear is we must focus in upon the truths of Scripture like our text passage, 2 Timothy chapter 1. God has not given us a spirit of fear. The spirit of fear, when you either make a choice to bow your head and pray in the school cafeteria or not to bow your head and pray. That doesn't come from God, that fear. That's how Satan distorts your natural desire to want to be liked and loved. But look at Romans chapter 8 verse 15. And here's what the Bible says. You did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear when you were saved, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Make sure that God is the central in your life, is in the box, as it were. God has not given us a spirit of fear. You have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. Then where does this fear come from? Satan uses that fear to keep you from bearing a witness, to keep you from growing, to keep you from being victorious, to keep you from lighting somebody else's fire in their lives. And the third way to overcome fear is found in 1 John chapter 4. And this is my favorite one. 1 John chapter 4 and verses 17 and 18. I want you to draw a circle around this in your Bibles. Love in verse 17, has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. 
Ladies and gentlemen, evil will never be converted in this world. It will be judged and destroyed, but it shall not be converted. There is, love has been perfected among us in this. We can have boldness in the day of judgment because evil will be judged. Everything that makes us fear will be judged. And as he is, so are we in this world. And he is the beloved of God, perfectly loved. Now verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves torment. Uh, fear involves being disfigured. It involves being shaken up. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love because perfect love casts out fear. Now what that means to me is this. When I understand God's full, mature, perfect love for me, I don't need to fear anybody or anything. When I understand God loves me, it is Papa watching a grandchild jump off the side of a pool. It is what you feel when you're with, you're traveling around the world with a millionaire and you know you've got considerably more resources than what it appears you've got. It's the comfort that comes from knowing that somebody is with you and his very presence, his very presence casts out fear. That's what happened to Peter. When Jesus identified himself and said, it is I, do not be afraid, his presence cast out fear. And the fear of witnessing is only overcome when we learn to receive God's perfect love and when we learn to love him in mature perfection in return. And the key to overcoming all fear is learning how to love Jesus maturely and perfectly. When you love somebody maturely, you don't dominate them. You don't manipulate them. You don't domineer them. You don't possess them. When you love somebody with a mature love, you give them freedom to be themselves and they give you freedom to be yourself. But in that perfect mature love, Fear is cast out. Not just fear of that person, but fear of everything around you when you know you're in the presence of that person. And that's what is meant here. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. The child that knows he's perfectly loved by his daddy has no fear of his daddy. And the child that knows he's perfectly loved by his grandparent has no fear of his grandparent. You know what one of my adult daughters told me this week? She confessed after all these years to a great sin of her childhood. She said, Daddy, when we used to take long trips and we would come home, I would lay in the back seat and play like I was asleep just so my daddy would have to put his arms underneath me and pick me up and I could feel what it was like to have my daddy carry me up to bed and put me to sleep. Perfect love casts out fear. Amen and amen. And if you've never been saved, I want to introduce you to Jesus who will 
reveal God to you so that you have no, you can overcome fear. And if you're a Christian and you're stuck in that boat, you're a would-be water walker, but you can't get out of the boat, I want to challenge you to get your eyes on Jesus. Love him. Learn how to love him. Learn how to focus on him until you're not afraid to jump out of that boat and take a risk and see what God will do when you take a risk and say, I believe you, Lord Jesus. There is nothing too hard for you. I will teach those third graders. I will get involved in that prayer ministry. I'll get involved in that abortion ministry. I'll get involved in that, uh, uh, I should say, pregnancy support ministry. I'll get involved in that uh, witnessing effort. I'll get involved in reaching people. I'll get involved in being a personal ministry leader. I want to learn to love you because perfect love casts out fear. And that's the way you defeat the enemy. Let's stand together for prayer. Oh God, most of us this morning have been measuring our fears and comparing our fears and identifying areas of our life where we are afraid and fearful. And yet you've not given us a spirit of fear but of power and of love and of a strong mind. And as we identify those fears, oh God, help us to make a commitment to give them up and to lay them down at your feet and to learn how to trust you with our worst fears so that we can be free, free to be all that you want us to be. In Jesus' name.